the Long Box Crusade presents monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. I've got this giant collection of movies at my house, and that's not enough. So I took over the Long Box Crusade headquarters attic, and that's where they keep all their wonderful movies. And this time, I snuck in one of my friends, Rachel. And now, give you guys a heads up, this is actually a face-to-face interview that we're doing and we can do it because her family and my family we have potted together during this insane COVID time because we both have small children that like each other and it saves our sanity so I would like you to meet Rachel Carey Rachel how are you doing I am excellent I'm so excited to be here today this is gonna be so fun I am excited to have you too this has been face-to-face which is great because don't get to do this because of COVID, but this is safe for us because we've already decided that our families are doing this together for our own sanity, right? Oh my gosh, if I didn't have somewhere to pawn my kid off, oh, I don't, I can't, I don't know where we'd be right now. And the same is true for me. Thank goodness our two kids get along great because we can just close our ears and say la 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 all day long. Exactly. Somebody else has to laugh at his terrible jokes. I can't. I can't do it anymore. I don't have it in me. Well, because of that, we have had the opportunity to get to really know each other pretty well over this last year, seeing each other every week. And that's where I discovered that you've got a big love of movies. I do have a big love of movies. I love movies. I love books. I love books based on movies. I love movies based on books. I just, I enjoy it all. And you're a big comic book fan, too. I am a big comic book fan. I'm a huge comic book nerd. Really, the only thing that I don't dig is Star Wars, but that's a huge discussion for another day. (laughs) Well, I I can tell you right now, I'm not going to give you Star Wars movies, but let's talk a little bit about your love of movies. You've mentioned to me on numerous occasions that you've seen a lot of movies. You used to go to the theater all the time. You love to consume media, correct? Correct. That I have really missed movie theaters. I know a lot of people, there's been a lot of debate about whether watching movies at home is better because you're not dealing with the people. But I just really miss the movie theater atmosphere that we just haven't ha- been able to have here in Oregon. So I am looking forward to the post-COVID times when I can go and get my huge tub of popcorn and my junior mints and probably some red vines and watch a movie on the really big screen. Yes, I miss that as well. And I think that now that we are friends, we can just leave our spouses home with the kids and we, you and I can go see the movies together because I think that's we're more in the same boat on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, speaking of movies, I think you'd like me to give you the movie I want you to see. Are you ready? I'm so excited. Good. You gave me a very, very good list, and I had a hard time choosing which one to give you, but I decided, and yes, even though this is face-to-face, I do have the film hidden in a lovely little brown paper bag, so I would like to give you This is Spinal Tap from 1984, the 1984 mockumentary film co-written and directed by Rob Reiner in his directorial debut. Rachel, what do you know about this film? I know that there's going to be so much hair, and there's going to be so much rock music, (laughs) and I know that in 1984, is that what you said? Yes. My parents deemed me not old enough to see this movie. Totally inappropriate, I believe, was the term, which just made me want to see it so much more. But it's not a movie that I see, like, playing on TV just randomly, Mm -hmm. so I have never 
had the opportunity to pick it up. I I don't know. Now that there aren't rental stores, it's just one that has been on my list that I have just never seen. And I am excited for some rock bands. Well, it's really fascinating that in all this time since 1984 and now you haven't picked it up, especially since there's so much of it that has always been in the zeitgeist of popular culture. It'll be really interesting to see references that I maybe know tangentially that come from this movie that I because I know they're in there. I just don't know them directly. So it'll be super exciting. Well, I think that we should give you a chance to watch it. And I might even be so nice as to lend you my copy since I know where you live and you know where I live. I'm going to let you go. We are going to listen to the trailer from 1984's This is Spinal Tap starring Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer. Through two decades, 17 classic albums, countless unforgettable concert triumphs, they changed the face of British rock music forever. And the best part is, they're back. Final tap, get out there, you're on! Now, they're on the verge of the greatest comeback of all time. Rock and roll! This is their moment. Go right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah. Turn right. Their time has come. Rock and roll! Any minute now. Any second. Hello, stage. I think we're lost. There's a little jog there. About 30 feet. Jog to the left. Get ready. Get set. Heavy metal's deep. You can get stuff out of it. My name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. One man dares to probe the hidden secrets. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point even. Don't even point. point. No, it can't be played. Never. I mean, can I look at it? No. One man dares to hear the shocking answers. It's tragic, really. He exploded on stage. To questions like, is the world really ready for spinal tap? You put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her collar. neck and a leash. And a leash. And pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, I don't. find that sexist? Yes, well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. After years of vicious gossip, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. Years of ugly rumors. It's a passing thing. This is a fact. And you are Spinal Tarp? Oh, what's going on here? Hi. Now, the vicious, ugly truth can be told. Well, I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. where eardrums go to die come the living legends of rock and roll lunacy. This is Spinal Tap. You know, it's like Hemingway said, you know, remember them as they were and write them off. And we are back. Now, before we crack into this rockumentary, let me go ahead and start off with a little bit of a synopsis of sorts. Filmmaker Marty, mm, 
Filmmaker Martin Marty DeBurgey follows the English rock group Spinal Tap on their 1982 United States concert tour to promote their new album, Smell the Glove. The band comprises childhood friends David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell on vocals and guitar, bassist Derek Smalls, keyboardist Vic Savage, and drummer Mick Shrimpton. The documentary includes personal behind-the-scenes footage of a group that has been together for over 15 years as they struggle with a producer who is blocking their album because of the cover art, a manager struggling to keep the show going even as venues cancel bookings, the intervention of David's girlfriend Janine, and Nigel quitting. The glamour, the fans, the music, that is what usually is shown to us, but this candid look at the friendship, stress, and day-to-day -day life of a rock star on the road is a sobering reminder that they are human too. Okay, in reality, this is a mockumentary. Everyone is an actor, but it's filmed in a documentary style. Utilizing a thin script and a lot of improv, the troupe weaves a story of a failing, mediocre band that thinks they are better than they are. With a disappearing fan base, they launch a pathetic attempt of a tour that suffers from problems after problem. The evolving story of their history, friendship, evolving styles and band names, dying drummers, and an infamous prop that goes to 11 makes this satire of rock and roll a benchmark for comedy. So, that may be one of my longer synopsises, but I had to do it because it's two different movies at the same time. Rachel, what did you think? What was your first impressions? Well, you loaned me the DVD, and I have to start there with the title menu. I don't know if you remember, but it's them explaining what play does and explaining what they think special features do in their perfect fake British accents. And it startled me at first because normally, you know, you put the DVD in and then some music comes up. No, it's just these British guys rapsing on about what they think might be included in the special features, whether it's, you know, their private parts or whatever. It was hilarious <laughs> and a great start. I really enjoyed the movie. I would 98% of it I thought was just fantastic and a huge, huge portions of it I didn't see coming. A lot of it was unexpected for me. Well, that's good. That's good. So it, it sounds like it matched up your expectations then. Yes, I was surprised what was included. And then I was also surprised about what wasn't included. If you think about rock and roll, you think sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Well, the sex is all implied. Yeah. The drug use is non-existent. It's implied too, because nobody can be that as dumb as these guys. <laughs> I guess. All right. I guess if, if you take the, take it that way, the drug use is implied, but it's not it's not explicit right, as you right. would see maybe in a in a movie made in the 2020s. Yeah. And but there was lots of rock and roll, like legitimate rock and roll. People playing, well, somebody playing some instruments and the band members singing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the band members are singing. I think there is a little bit of competence on the part of some of the players. I'm not sure entirely, but yeah, for being a mockumentary for being actors playing these parts and for being songs that these guys all wrote themselves. These guys are the ones who wrote the songs. It's not bad. I mean, they come across as a mediocre rock band and that's exactly what they're hitting. We're not supposed to be hearing Stairway to Heaven and they aren't giving it to us. They're giving us the penny version of a Stairway to Heaven is what we're getting. Yes, and it's perfect and it works and I really enjoyed it. I watched it three times. <laughs> Well, that is good. I think we're going to have a good time talking about this then. Let's dive into it a little bit. Let's talk about the main cast of this. We've got the three guys. We've got David, Nigel, and I like to call him Smalls. I know it's Derek, but I always think of him as Smalls because he's small. Um, I'm, I'm shallow like that. <laughs> 
they're played by Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer. So let's start with Michael McKean. He's he's the blonde-headed rock god of this entire thing. First of all, did you recognize him? No, he was completely unrecognizable, in my opinion. Much more so than some of the other characters, but I literally had to wait to the credits to be like, who is that? I know him, but I don't know him, but I know him. Lenny from Laverne and Shirley and Clue and a lot of the other movies that this troupe has done. But it's Michael McKean, uh, most recently seen on uh, Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. He plays the brother in Better Call Saul. Yeah, unrecognizable with that wig. And he's singing and he's British, faux British. <laughs> I thought his fake British accent was perfection. Yes, absolutely hilarious. And what did you think about his character? I thought his character was overshadowed by Christopher Guest's Nigel. Yes. I mean, huge company there, hard to to compete. But I thought he was overshadowed by just the huge amount of face acting that Christopher Guest is doing and the looks that he's giving. While while the main character's talking, he's doing all of this side eye and eye rolling and looking at him lovingly, and the whole thing is just yes. really great. The, the thinly veiled love affair between David and Nigel. Yes. Yes, that was great and so forward thinking, and the way they handled it by not handling it, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that. Yes. I thought they did a magnificent job working that into the, the plot but not uh, shaming anyone or no. calling anyone out. So no. No, for no, the 1980s, that was very progressive. Yeah, nobody says anything. Uh, I mean, maybe Janine knows. I'm pretty sure she knows, but oh, she's, she not, totally yeah, knows. she's not saying anything. I mean, there's a weird love triangle going on between those three there. It's interesting, though, that you're right. He is the lead singer. He's kind of the front face of the band. I mean, it's all three of the guys, but, you know, he's the lead singer. He's the front face. He's, I guess, the prettier of the three. <laughs> Yeah, I guess as pretty as you can be with a wig and spandex. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, you're right. It is Nigel who is the front man of the band. And I mean, let's talk about Nigel's character. What did you think of him? That performance was so nuanced. Like I mentioned, everything from his wardrobe with all the Gumby references in it, and all the face acting he did, and even his makeup—they give him cold sore yeah in some of the scenes and you it starts in one and then you like see it heal up like throughout the future scenes that's genius and also speaking of cold sores yeah david's got a cold sore too yeah i saw yeah. they had matching ones yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. there's questions we have once again another hidden performance here because christopher guest has been all over the place Yes. What would you normally know Christopher Guest from? Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, but those all he directed, and this one he did not. Right, so. but but he got the style, and he took the troupe from this movie. I mean, you you see these guys all in the same roles. In fact, if you look at, I don't know if you've seen A Mighty Wind. A Mighty Wind is roughly a sequel to this, because these three guys play a... I mean, Mighty Wind is all about folk singers... And these three guys play a folk version of themselves. Ooh, well, I'll watch that next. Christopher Guest is also the six-fingered man from Princess Bride. Oh, that's right. Yes. There are a couple Princess Bride people in this. Yes, there, right? there are. Yes. yes, there are. Okay, I'm with you now. Once again, Christopher Guest is amazing at how well he can disappear inside a character. He is great at it. And I, I, I think I was telling my wife that I was like, that's who that is. And she was just her mind was blown. I'm, I'm pointing out people throughout the entire film. And she's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. But we also have with Christopher Yes and with Nigel, he's got one of the most iconic scenes in this entire film. And that is the 11 
the 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 stereo going to 11. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Did you know that they actually do that? Some Gibson guitars have always gone to 11, so that wasn't as rare as he was making it out to be. But as someone who worked at a radio station and who has been around musicians and their <laughs> instruments, I'm here to tell you that that scene was almost not funny because it's so true. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Don't pick it up. Just get me my Oreos with the cream filling taken out, which is also not funny because it's also true because I did stuff like that, like pick all the red M&Ms out when I worked at the radio station. So that part of it was so accurate. It was almost painful. Was reading through IMDb trivia, and I, one other thing with IMDb coming up shortly. But I was reading through some of the trivia because I like to do that sometimes after the film, and some of it's bunk. I get it, but apparently they've talked to a lot of different people in rock and roll about this film, and a lot of the rock and roll gods like Ozzy Osbourne and and you two, they, they watch this film, and it's not funny for them because they're like, "Oh dear, this is true," and this is supposed to be mocking us, and it's way too true. <laughs> yeah. It's the same reason I, when I worked in an office, I couldn't watch The Office. I'm like, this is just painful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing on IMDb, I noticed this time, and this made me stop and made me laugh, because I always like to glance at how many stars films get. And this had 7.8 stars. And then IMDb always does out of 10, except one page, except for Spinal Tap's page. Spinal Tap's page has 7.8 out of 11 stars. That's genius. It is genius. I stopped. I had never noticed it before, and I had to do a screenshot. It was wonderful. The other one, the other, <laughs> the other member of the triad of evil is Derek Smalls, played by Harry Shearer. Also, wouldn't have gotten it without the mustache. <laughs> Just threw me so far off that I, I never would have gotten there on my own. Yeah, he's he's a quiet one of the band. He's kind of the one who sits back and watches the you know David David and Nigel fight. But another well known person, especially if you're a Simpsons fan. Definitely. I mean, once again, the entire talent that exists within this group of people. You've got the guy who does the voices for a good chunk of the Simpsons cast here. And has for 40 years now? I mean, (laughs) yeah, no. The part where he gets stuck in his pod. Yes. Had tears coming out of my eyes for the laughing where they're getting him out with the blowtorch. All of that was so nuanced and so great. The other singers just keep going like it's not happening. Then he busts out and the very end and tries to go back in and get stuck. Rock on. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, and and as they're playing, they keep talking to you. It's like, what should we do? We should keep playing. And they're trying to play. And there's hammering going on. And they keep looking back. And you can tell they're off their game. And they're just trying to get through it. Once again, it is the worst tour in the world. Everything bad happens all the time. But when the other two come out at the beginning, you're like, this is so cool. Yeah, this is so cool. So cool. And then the third one, anyway, it was great. (laughs) We should talk a little bit more about, since we're here already, let's talk a little bit more about some of the concerts. Because the concerts all have their moments. Uh, which was the favorite concert? Which which concert was the favorite? Was it was it the pod or the pod was great, but I think when they play on the uh, air, air it was an Air Force base. Yes. I think when yes. they play on the Air Force base, and the people just get up and leave, and they're singing the farm love song. All that was great. You have yeah. yeah. Part part of the tour uh, in order to. In order to try to cover, and this is when Janine is actually in charge, she makes a deal and decides that they're going to, because their concert got canceled in Seattle, she has made a, found another venue for them to play, and it is the At Ease Weekend at an Air Force Base. 
and they don't know what they've got. They don't know, the Air Force doesn't know what they've got. The band doesn't know why they're there. The band just plays their song, and it is the wrong fit at the wrong place, and it is uncomfortable as anything, and it is so funny to watch. (laughs) And they're brought up there by the captain who's played by... Oh gosh, um, Fred Willard. Fred Willard, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the 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 small guests in this are insane, and you miss half of them because this is 1984 when some of these people hadn't quite hit it big yet or are on their way to hitting it big. Early on in the film, they have the the welcome to the tour party put on by the producers, and for some weird reason, all the waiters are mimes. Some creepy reason. And I did not recognize the super famous people in that scene. Two of them. Because they had two of them because they had their faces painted almost like clowns. And I, we all know how I feel about clowns. It's not a good, not a good scene. <laughs> so maybe I wasn't paying a lot of attention. One of them, one of them you can't see at all. And that's, and that's supposed to be um, Dana Carvey. And that's Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey is hidden in there. He's one of the mimes. And you, you have to really look for him. But the head mime, the guy who's in charge of it all, you hear his voice and it's like, that's Billy Crystal. I missed it. Oh, he, it's, I missed it. It's when the, the, the he's telling them to go out there and serve. He he's giving them instructions, and he's just got a sour look on his face. It's Billy Crystal just being Billy Crystal. It kills me every time. It is such a small part. Yes, yes. such a small part. But we're missing the piece de resistance. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite people on the planet. She is an LGBTQIA advocate. She's a fabulous actress. And she comes on and owns the entire scene. No, she steals the scene. Yep. She's at home in bed with an alibi before the rest of the people in the scene know what happened. And that is Fran Drescher. Yep. She's amazeballs, smart, talented. And now that we've got that out of the way, absolutely and completely flawless in the two scenes that she's in. This was before high-def cameras and high-def TV, but even on the high-def TV, flawless. <laughs> I loved it so much, and I think that she wasn't in any more than two scenes because no. the whole movie would have been about her. She was so great. Well, she comes on, and, and I always forget that she's in the movie, and then she opens her mouth, and like you hear her voice before she turns around, like, oh, gosh, it's Fran Drescher. <laughs> You cannot miss that voice at all. You can't. You can't. But yeah, she she owns it, and she is she's representing the company, and and she's got the great line where she's sitting there telling the manager, she's like, "No, the cover's horrible, and I'm going to tell you why. It's offensive. Why?" And she explains why, and it's incredibly offensive. The manager's trying to, you know, the manager's doing his job. He's trying to justify it as best he can. He's got to give the bad news to the band. They're not going to like it, so he's fighting for them. But yeah, she comes in and just double guns blazing. She went right from happy, I'm the host, to I'm the hostess. This is stupid. This is horrible. This is offensive. You have to get it changed. Okay, we're going to go back to the party now. All right, how's everybody having fun? <laughs> Turns it, it was off perfect. And on. She literally tells that guy, get out of the 60s. This is 1982 and this is sexist. And guess what? That was super forward thinking. Yes. <laughs> super forward thinking. I loved every part of her scene. And I was like, oh, tell me she's going to be back. But she's, she's got, sadly not. She's got one other little part. Uh, there's another, a couple other people that were in this, just bit parts. Uh, Howard Hessman, he's a manager for another rival rock and roll star. And he comes in just being Howard Hessman, you know, right out of right out of WKRP Cincinnati. I mean, he's just yeah. he is owning that role. He comes in and it's just like he owns the room. And once again, making this these rock and roll band, you know, making Nigel and David and just making them look small. Just yeah. making them look small. And then you have another guy who comes in and that's uh you got Schaefer. Yep. 
I also didn't recognize him. Super young. They've got a comb over situation going on that's distracting that I think makes you not recognize him. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right from right from Letterman's band. I mean, you know, he's out there and he's he's the publicist. He's supposed to get them a lot of people to come into their signing of their album, which the album comes out and because the cover was offensive. It's now all black. It's black on black. It is. We are bleeding the printer dry of all the black ink black. Yes. <laughs> So I did some research on this. Who in your research or in your opinion is that a tribute to, do you think? That would be the Beatles' White Album. You think so? That was one of the that was one series. What did you find out? I think that it's Black Sabbath. Probably is. Could be as well. Could be a combination of the two. Well, I mean, they want to be the Beatles in the White Album. Right. But they're not. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this has no print on it, by the way. It's literally just, it doesn't say their name on nope. it. It's just black. Just black. Just black. Not, not even a sticker to say, no, no. nothing. Just nothing. black. And they're lucky they've got that. We have this cast of just insane people doing insane things. And there are some funny scenes. Was there a scene that really stood out to you the most? Oh, that one with Fran Drescher was probably my absolute favorite. There's one that I stood out that I didn't care for. And that's where that didn't really mesh with the whole rest of the movie, in mm-hmm. my opinion, where he's going through the, the drummers going through the metal detector. <laughs> and they have to scan him because he keeps setting off the metal detector. And then he takes a cucumber out of his pants. And I'm that's like, wrapped in tinfoil. Yeah. Is it wrapped in tinfoil? Wrapped in tinfoil. Oh, for the life of me on all three of my watches, I couldn't figure out why that was setting off the metal detector. I was like, this is a really fatal flaw in this scene. <laughs> he, he has it wrapped in tinfoil. And, and they make a joke about it earlier where they're saying, well, you know, people, women can't handle us because we've got the, you know, we're large. We've got these large men. And then he comes in and, and a couple of the shots you see, it's like they look almost grotesque, you know, when you see their, their tight pants on them. And then he pulls out this giant pickle and just walks away. And it's just like, Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> You're laughing at them because they're they're imbeciles, but they're not dangerous. They're not hurting anybody. They just are are dumb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your your main your main rocker is in a committed relationship mm-hmm. the entire movie, which seemed like when they brought her into the scene, they bring Janine the girlfriend into the yeah. scene. I'm like, "Oh, this is going to be about Janine getting her heart broken and it's just totally not." No. It was super unexpected in that way. No, it, it's it's not about her. It's it's a callback to Yoko Ono. Yeah. I mean, I it, get the it, reference. Yeah, it definitely is. And 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 they're not subtle about that at all. <laughs> but it's it also helps with the love triangle as well. <laughs> what did you think about the Stonehenge scene? Oh my gosh, that was so funny. That is what makes me think it's a Black Sabbath yeah, reference yeah. because they have Stonehenge. Yep. Yeah. It was so funny and I didn't catch it when he wrote it on the napkin on my first watching. I was just like, oh yeah, 18 feet. No, no, no girl. No, 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 no. He had two marks there. He had two marks there. Yeah. No, I like that they just rolled with it too. They just bring it out. Yeah. And and and. Don't tell the band. And notice, too, we didn't really mention him, but the manager of the band, Ian, he's got this great scene early in the film where he's talking to the director and he says, well, yeah, I know you have a cricket bat there. And he goes, yeah, you, you never know when you might need to carry around a piece of wood. And then you have this montage of him just getting angry and breaking stuff. And you, you OK, he's not afraid to use it. Well, the scene where the Stonehenge comes down onto the onto the stage, they look over to the side and he's holding the, the bat and he's the cricket bat. And he's just tapping his hands, warning the band, like, don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. He didn't tell the band. He surprised them. But he's like, no, this, we aren't going to have this fight. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
I like the early interview scenes where they're talking about what happened to the drummers. I had to have Wikipedia help me out because I was trying to write it all down and get how many drummers there were and how they died. But just a sampling would be one died in a random gardening accident. One choked on someone else's vomit. Yep. One disappeared. Yeah. One just completely disappeared. It goes on and on and on. Spontaneous combustion. That's right. Spontaneous Mm -hmm. combustion. At one point in time, they say they've had... 37 members in the band yes. and and somebody broke it down like well they've got the they've got the four that are the the constants so that must mean they've gone through 32 drummers up until now they've gone through 32 drummers oh they said nine other drummers were referenced in the movie i didn't catch all nine well yeah they say nine other but they say they've gone through uh, that many people in the band but they've always had the same four so that must mean that until the last drummer there 32 30. <laughs> Yeah. It was bananas. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we also have the evolution of the band, too. They are calling out a lot of different acts, a lot of different bands. The 60s and the 70s. They've been around for 15 years, so they've kind of you know, scanned those decades. And so we have them starting off as a folk band. And we get you know scenes of them as a folk band. And we get them as the, high, the psychedelic kind of thing. So you love music. So, you know, Beatles. Beatles, yeah, but... <laughs> Um, a bit of, maybe you can even say Pink Floyd a little bit there, too. A little big Pink Floyd, a little Beach Boys in yeah, there. I Pink mean, they took, they took their shots all across the board, which yeah. I appreciate. You said that you had the one low point with him going through the metal detector. Was there anything else that stood out with to you that was bad or just didn't work? No, that was the only scene that I thought lacked the subtlety and just continuity that the whole rest of the film flowed through. Because, like... A mockumentary would be mm-hmm. you're cutting between interviews and quote-unquote live shot footage. So uh, everything worked until that metal detector scene. And I'm like, why did you take me out in the moment? Why Why did we do this? I don't I don't understand. But yeah, no, the, that was the only one that I would call out. I did remember there is one other character we haven't talked about. And that is probably, could argue, the most important character of the movie. And that is... Rob Reiner himself. Rob Reiner himself. I was going to bring that up. What Mm -hmm. is up with that hat? What is going on? (laughs) I Googled and Googled and Googled and could not come up with a reason that he was wearing that weird Navy hat. It's a thing that he saw a mockumentary director do. It helps place him as always being there. You you always recognize him. He makes him a little square to the band too, maybe. But that hat has appeared in one other place. Where's that? It is in Fred Savage's room. In The Princess Bride. You're kidding me. Yes. Oh, I love that. Because, once again, it's, this was Rob Reiner's first film that he directed. And Rob Reiner, before this, he was just known as Meathead on All in the Family. Right. So what did you think of Rob Reiner coming out of the gate as not only directing the film, but just also picking up his own acting roots and, and being in the film as well? I could have done without him. Like, I thought his directing was good, but directing yourself is always hard. Some of his line delivery was a little forced, and I don't think that he, him being in the movie, Mm -hmm. added anything to it, and you had all these just amazing stars that you could have picked to be that character and put that hat on, who who I think could have carried it a little better. That's why I didn't even list him in the characters, because he's kind of a non-entity. And that's part of it, too. I actually appreciate him in this, because except for the first scene where he does the introduction, he is in most of the rest of the scenes. He's asking questions. He does such a good job of being vanilla and blending into the background that he lets the others shine. And I think that that's actually important. And I think you might even be saying that a little bit there, too, because you don't recognize him that much. He doesn't stick out. 
And I think if you had anybody else really impressive or a really other good actor in there, they might take some of the shine away from the other people. I see your point. I still think that if for his directorial debut, he should have stepped aside and directed somebody else. Yeah. The scene with the guitars, he's kind of like stilted and in the way, which I guess would be true if you were shooting actual documentary yeah. footage. So I'm willing to let it play. But um, I just didn't like... He didn't take away, he didn't really add anything either, would be my take on him. And that's, I would consider that to be exactly what he wanted to do. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I want to be in this film. I want to go ahead and move the film along. I'm one of the writers of the film. I mean, they, they came up with it all together. But I think he does a good job of just, I'm vanilla. You don't see me. I'm just doing the prompting. Otherwise, everyone else is going. The, the one thing I do miss of him, though, is... You see it in some of his questions, but you don't get his own disappointment at how pathetic this band is and how pathetic these people are. You hear it in some of the questions he's asking. He's like, you know, asking you, but why? Why are you doing this? And he's watching them all implode, but he just doesn't. We don't get his reaction of this is a train wreck. Right. No point of view for him. Yeah, right. And he doesn't always ask those questions. Sometimes they had another reporter in there yeah. talking to the band. So I don't, yeah, I just don't think that he brought anything extra to it. Before we start to wrap it up, is there anything else that you really want to talk about or hit on? Is there any other great, big, wonderful scenes that we haven't mentioned from your notes yet? Yes. Let's talk about the credits, which had my favorite line of the whole movie in it. <laughs> and what I'm going to say when people ask me if substitute teaching doesn't work out, they ask him what he's going to do next. Yeah. <laughs> the lead singer, what he's going to do next. And he said, I'll be a full time dreamer. Yeah. That is that is that is it. That is perfection. I too am going to be a full time dreamer. Yeah, they had some other things. He wants to work with one of them. Wanted to work with children. Haberdashery. Uh, yeah, haberdashery. I, I, I can sell hats. I'm really good at selling hats. <laughs> Do you uh, like hats? <laughs> uh, he, he wants to have a food time all the time. He, he likes the cans of tuna fish that they have in the United States because they have no the fish have no bones in them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just, wait, what? <laughs> He's talking about the shirt that he wears. Nigel talks about the shirt that he wears throughout the movie, which is uh, a skeleton shirt. He says, this is the actual representation of my actual bones on the inside. Except uh, Robert says, well, are they green? Well, yeah, they're green. Well, no, no, your bones aren't, aren't green. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's not really then. <laughs> yeah, it's just ridiculous. And... <laughs> And of course, the, before the credits, the band does get redemption. They do go to Japan and they get a play in Japan because they're always big in Japan. You're always going to be big in Japan. <laughs> yes, they do have some redemption. <laughs> they there. do have some redemption. Anything else you wanted to mention? I have one thing. Since sure. we're speaking about shirts, I don't know if your listeners know that your birthday was this week. Yes, it was. And that you have a rather comprehensive t-shirt collection. I do. So I brought something against your wife's wishes to add to that. <laughs> It's in that bag right there if you would like to open it and tell the people about it. Okay. Now, I, I will say this is going to come out uh, probably about four months after my birthday. But you get more get, presents. Get, Just get roll with it. I'm going to get it. <laughs> so, let's see here. Inside the bag, this, this feels like I'm actually doing what I normally do on my other show where I give Jeff a beer he doesn't know about. For me, it's a t-shirt. So, I'm going to open... <laughs> here a black shirt that has spinal tap with the three members of the band and it says one louder <laughs> yes i don't have a spinal tap shirt now i do this is fantastic thank you very much you're welcome happy birthday oh this is great i need to have, i need to do more in-person shows this is wonderful <laughs> 
All right, so let's go ahead and move on to ranking this film, and then maybe I'll rank my t-shirt. But first, we're going to rank the film. Of course, here on the Longbox Crusade, we only do full bags of popcorn. One through five, one being terrible, five being the best. What would you give this film, Rachel? I would give this film five. I mean, one little scene that I didn't get, because apparently I wasn't that interested in it, does not (laughs) take away from all the brilliance that this movie had. The forward thinking, the timelessness of a period piece made about an 80s rock band, I'm five for sure. I am right there with you. I give this a five too. It's one of those films that I forget about sometimes and I'm like, oh yeah, I like Spinal Tap. I like it a lot. And then I watch it and I'm just like, this is funny. This is hilarious. It is a good time. And it created its own little mockumentary type of style that went on big. And this entire group did some amazing things after this. Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, Mighty Wind. I mean, they did so many good things. So yes, I agree too. Normally, I would give people a chance to say where they can find them on the internet, but Rachel doesn't want to talk to people. She she doesn't want to talk to you. She doesn't want to talk to you at all. I don't know about that, but I'm super <laughs> boring. So if you really need to talk to me, reach out to Rick and I'm sure he'll pass along my information. <laughs> if you're nice. As for myself, you can always find me on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff a man who does indeed go to 11. If you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick present, all one word at gmail.com. And a big thank you to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this wonderful attic of their headquarters. I'm sorry that it gets so loud sometimes, but, <laughs> you know, the speakers only go to 11. I'd also like to thank Omaha Bound, who is still on their one-year hiatus. If you have some comic books that you would like to bind up and get into a great hardcover binding, contact Omaha Bound. They would be glad to help you out after their year hiatus. Big thank you also to the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you would like to support this network, head on over to Patreon and search for the Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have for you this week. Grab some popcorn pulp a seat because we will be back next week with another movie. Music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9.